British House of Commons, Sunday night at 9 on C-SPAN. Sudan's ambassador to the U.S. spoke at this news conference today. He responded to Secretary of State Powell's recent remarks that actions by the Sudanese government and militias constitute genocide. This was hosted by the group Give Peace a Chance in Sudan. It's an hour. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. My name is Hodari Abdullali. I'm the executive director of the Coalition to Give Peace a Chance in Sudan. The coalition is an alliance of local and national organizations concerned about Sudan. We're concerned about the international intrigue taking place in Sudan. We're concerned about the propaganda campaign being waged about Sudan. We call this press conference to help set the record straight. We have three reasons for calling this press conference this morning. Number one, we wanted to give the Sudanese ambassador the opportunity to respond to the false charges of genocide issued by Colin Powell. Number two, we wanted you to have an opportunity to hear from some credible eyewitness observers who have recently returned from Darfur to share with you their observations. And number three, we wanted to give you an idea of, of the growing support within the African-American and Muslim community to combat this propaganda campaign against Sudan. The format of our press conference is as such. Each participant will speak. Uh, the total amount of the presentations will take about a half an hour, then we'll allow a half an hour for a Q&A. So when it time, comes time for the Q&A, we'd just like you to identify yourself and direct your question to a participant. We're going to begin with Kidder Haroun Ahmed. He is the ambassador of Sudan to the United States. He will be followed by Akbar Mohammed, who is the de facto Minister of Foreign Affairs for Minister Louis Farrakhan in the Nation of Islam. He will be followed by Imam Khalid Abdul Fattah Griggs, who is an activist, a journalist, uh, an author, and the Imam of the Community Mosque of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he will be followed by Mari Sulakan, who is the executive director of the Peace and Justice Foundation, a, an activist organization based here in the Washington, D.C. area with a national impact. So we'll begin first with Kidder Haroun Ahmed, the ambassador of Sudan to the United States. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Assalamu alaikum. First of all, let me uh, express my appreciation and thanks to the uh, Coalition of, give, of uh, give Peace a Chance in Sudan for their sincerity and uh, for help the Sudanese people at this critical time in our history. Uh, in uh, his testimony before the U.S. Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, Secretary of State uh, Honorable Colin Powell has accused the government of Sudan as an accomplice in genocide, he says, is occurring in Darfur, Western Sudan. I and my government are very dismayed at this characterization by the Secretary of State and implore the American public to take a closer look at the humanitarian crisis in my country and devise positive ways to help people there. Uh, 
We urge Americans to note that the methodology used by the Department of State operatives to reach this weighty conclusion was flawed from the outset. Peace-loving Americans need to know that the observation that drew these conclusions were prepared by an American investigating team. Thank you. Peace-loving Americans need to know uh, that the observation that drew this conclusion were prepared by an American investigating team that never even set foot in the Darfur region. Instead, the American team interviewed refugees in the neighboring country of Chad who live in camps that serve as safe haven for the leaders of the rebel movements. The influence of the rebel movement on the outcome of the American investigation cannot be overstated. We want Americans to know that the Secretary of State's characterization of the Darfur situation is in stark contrast to more comprehensive and thoughtful assessment of the European Union, African Union, Arab League, Organization of Islamic Conference, the Non-Aligned Movement, International Red Cross, and Doctors Without Borders. All of these have and have had personnel on the ground in Darfur for months working with internally displaced people and their problems. These people have been there and are seeking to be parts of the solution, not seeking to, to create more problems. Their assessments are based on realities on the ground and not made for short-term political considerations. Just two days ago, on September the 13th, the United Nations Secretary General Special Representative based in Sudan, Mr. Jan Bronk, is an interview with the BBC confirmed again that, quote, there is no genocide in Darfur. This is the man who is entrusted by the international community to assess the situation in Sudan. He added, quote, killing occurs, but it doesn't seem that the government of Sudan is responsible for that, unquote. The French foreign ministry issued on September 12th, which is uh, just two days ago also, a statement in which the spokesman refused to tame what is going on in Darfur as genocide. Again, two days ago, Mrs. Francoise Boucher-Saumier, a senior official in the Doctors Without Borders, in an interview with the French radio station France Info, rejected in a vehement manner the, the characterization of the situation in Darfur as genocide. She confirmed that from their experience in different parts of Darfur, among the civilians affected by this tragic situation, they never came across any single evidence to substantiate that characterization. 
She stated that, that the conclusion of the American administration was politically motivated. Ms. Sommier expressed real concern over politicizing this, this humanitarian crisis. Secretary Powell's testimony, while admitting that the two rebel movements kidnap relief workers, violate ceasefire agreements, has failed to hold them accountable for the killing, looting, burning of villages, and other atrocities which occur as a natural result to their criminal behavior as mentioned by the Secretary himself. While U.S. Senators at the hearing stated without supporting evidence that the government of Sudan has armed and trained the Janjaweed, none ask who has armed and trained the two rebel movements, the, the real perpetrators of this tragedy who started the fire in the first place. The consequences of the Secretary of State's message have already been seen. The Sudanese rebel representative, representative during negotiation in Abuja, Nigeria, have declared the peace talks dead and pledged to wage a full-scale war from, the, from all directions to bring down the government. In fact, just yesterday, the uh, negotiations Abuja has been suspended for another month as a direct result of this uh, uh, tragic uh, testimony of the Secretary of State here. Despite the fact that the American characterization of the situation in Darfur is isolated from that of the international community, the American administration had criticized the balanced assessment of the United Nations Secretary General to the Security Council on September the 2nd and currently working hard to pass another resolution to punish the government of Sudan. We would like to appeal to the fair-minded Americans to urge their representative to help the Sudanese people to reconcile their differences and to work for peace, bashing, condemnation, and imposition of sanctions would only aggravate the situation there and create more suffering and misery. And I'm glad to announce that now you are about to hear from people who just came from Darfur region people who saw with their own eyes the realities of the situation there. They belong to different walks of life and different religious as well as civic uh, organization. Thank you very much. Our next speaker will be Akbar Mohammed, who is a longtime supporter and leader in the Nation of Islam, who has traveled throughout the world, who has just come back with a delegation in Darfur. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, good morning. I want to thank um, His Excellency, the Ambassador, and the group that pulled together this uh, press conference. Um, and I want to, uh, first, we just returned two days ago from the Sudan. And I want to share with you uh, briefly um, what we found and what the message that's been conveyed by the American press and the impact of Colin Powell's appearance uh, before a Senate committee. Um, I'd like to start with um, 
Minister Louis Farrakhan, the leader of the Nation of Islam, was approached about three weeks ago by a highly visible person in the entertainment field. And uh, he said that a group had come to him to condemn the Sudanese government and to join the protest and the arrest in front of the Sudanese embassy. His mind was that he didn't know enough about the uh, international arena. He didn't know enough about Sudan. So he picked up the phone to call Minister Farrakhan. And Minister Farrakhan explained to him, he said, well, my brother, um, before you condemn the government in Khartoum, you have the means, why don't you go to the Sudan and see for yourself and take a highly visible delegation, a cross-section of African Americans with you. And then he went on later to ask him, and why don't you, you'll be in St. Louis, why don't you talk to Brother Akbar, myself? He knows something about the Sudan and the current situation. So this person did not go to the Sudan, but it stopped him from joining the chorus of those who are condemning the Sudan. And to me, this is very important because he was approached by an outside entity. It wasn't his reading of the New York Times, uh, calls from people who were suffering in the Sudan, but an outside entity, and not from the African-American community, approached him because of his highly visible position uh, in the African-American community to join the chorus. My name is Akbar Mohammed. I'm the international representative for Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. My focus in the Nation of Islam is the continent of Africa. I've lived in the country of Ghana for 10 years, where I still have a home and I travel back and forth. In my years in Africa, I've visited 37 African countries to date. And before God takes me, I hope to visit them all. My first visit to the Sudan was 1977. And I've traveled many times to this country through different administrations to the Sudan. The Sudan, which is the largest land area Africa, uh, country in Africa, uh, has a mixed culture. And many people who look at the Sudan do not understand the dynamics. We went to the Sudan because we noticed that the African-American community was the focus of attention on this attack of the government of the Sudan. And it's a repeat history of what happened uh, with the slavery issue in the Sudan. When the slavery issue started in 1993, it was a group out of Boston, a Dr. Charles Jacobs, a Jewish gentleman who started the anti-slavery coalition. His focus was Mauritania and the Sudan. And there's always been problems in those areas between the nomads or herders and those who were farmers. This is not a new phenomenon from Mauritania to Mali to Chad to the Sudan and Libya, this problem has gone on for hundreds of years. But this particular time, the focus now has been on genocide. But what we found is that this is a repeat performance and for some reason, there's a concerted effort to destroy the existing government in Khartoum. If you look at the book, and I would recommend, especially those who are journalists, um, Pat Buchanan's book, he mentions the Sudan in here. And in this book, he's attacking the policy of this government vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic world and showing that the Bush gave Sudan, uh, excuse me, Osama bin Laden what he never wished for when he attacked Iraq. So on that list is the country of the Sudan. And the thing that is painful to me 
and those of us that we are associated within this country, that they have used the African-American community, many of them apolitical, and the Congressional Black Caucus to launch the same kind of attack that they launched over the issue of slavery, saying that an Arab-led government in Khartoum had backed Arab militias to make slaves out of black Christians in the South. When the story was exposed to be a fraud, they went so far as even to produce on Touch by an Angel a piece on television where they showed school children all across America collecting money to go to the Sudan and buy slaves from Arabs and feed them. Then a minister, a prominent minister in Boston, said he went to Sudan with a load of money that he raised from his congregation and other fair-minded Americans who thought they were doing good. He freed 5,000 slaves. And then when it was discovered by first the Guardian out of London, that this whole slavery scheme was a part of a propaganda, a move by special interest groups that wanted to destroy the Islamic government in Khartoum because they gave a base to Islamic Jihad and Hamas, and there was a concerted effort to destroy that government, and it has not stopped. I am not a novice to this. I'm not a new person. When the charge of slavery came, Minister Farrakhan said, we have to look into this because if there are Arab or either not Arabs, but black people making slaves out of other black people, then we have to condemn that action and condemn those who are behind it. I took three delegations to the Sudan. We went to Juba, we talked to people, we talked to black people from the South in Khartoum, and there was no evidence of slavery, and they explained to me, they said, look, this is a tribal situation. When you're at war, tribes, raid tribes, they capture people, they hold them, they trade them for weapons or food, they trade them back, it goes back and forth, and it's as old as humanity itself. In Uganda, where the Lord's Resistance Army is fighting the government of uh, Museveni, they captured people, young girls, young boys. They never used the term slavery for them, they used them abductees, but in the Sudan, because of this direction to destroy the government of Sudan, it's called slavery. And what is painful to us in the African-American community, and I'm not saying this because I'm a Muslim. I've been a Muslim 44 years of my life. But what is painful, we are given an agenda. And we are expected to use that agenda in our community, in our churches, when we don't know the facts on the ground. So this delegation that I was blessed to take to the Sudan they went there, they're, they're not Muslims. We had a Christian pastor, we had a lawyer, we had some press people. These are not Muslims. We had a radio talk show host. And we went there so we could see for ourselves and we found a total different picture. In my prepared statement that I'm gonna deviate from, the conception in the African American community is that the government of Khartoum has armed some Arabs and sent them into the Darfur region, which is a region as big as France, with three areas, northern Darfur, southern Darfur, and western Darfur, and sent them in to kill the indigenous people. Don't forget, 100% of them are Muslims. And when you say Arab to a black American, he thinks of a Lebanese, a Syrian, somebody who looks like the spokesman from Saudi Arabia, not Prince Banda, but this is his mind of what an Arab is or the corner grocery store man who is selling is from uh, Palestine or Syria or Chaldean from Iraq. That's his concept of an Arab. And with that continuously fed to him, he thinks that some white Arabs 
have been armed by a white Arab government to kill black Africans, to rape their women, burn their villages, kill their babies and old men in order to take their land for some purpose that the government has. This is the picture in the general black community. This is why Joe Madison is fasting. This is why Congressman Charlie Rangel was arrested in front of the Sudanese embassy. This is why there's been protests day after day because they say there's a racist policy uh, emanating from the government of Khartoum in Khartoum to wipe out black Africans in the Sudan, while it's a total different picture altogether. If you notice those members of the press who are in this room, Whenever you wrote a story on Libya, you showed a picture of Muammar Gaddafi. Whenever you wrote a story on Lebanon, you either showed um, Lahoud, uh, the president of Lebanon, or the prime minister of Lebanon. When Saddam Hussein was in power, every time you mentioned Iraq, his picture was shown. When you mention uh, Iran, you show a picture of Khatami. So whenever you mention people in that part of the world, you show their pictures. How many pictures, as much as Sudan has been in the press, how many pictures of the president of the Sudan have you seen? And I can tell you in this room, very few of you even know what he looks like because he doesn't fit the propaganda network that's out there, especially in the black community, because he's a black man, my complexion, or darker. And all of his ministers, and I have a picture of him that I got from the vice president when I was in the Sudan. I have plenty of pictures of Omar Bashir, but I got a, a picture of late so that you can ask, is there a conspiracy in the press? I don't know, by the editorial in the Saturday's New York Times and the story in New York Times, there may be a conspiracy by the press so that Bush can do what he wants to do with a government that they have a problem with. The fact that the Clinton administration bombed a pharmaceutical plant, when it was found out it was a mistake and the government quietly apologized, why wasn't that in the front of the news? That we made a mistake, it was really a pharmaceutical plant. Why haven't the people been compensated as of date? The apology was low key. It was on a diplomatic level, but it didn't reach the headlines of the newspaper. When the slavery fraud was exposed, why wasn't it in every black newspaper across America to say that we had found out that this was a fraud on this slavery and the group that was involved, though John Garang distanced himself for it, but he said it was his people who used the money raised by innocent school children in America to buy big homes in Kenya and buy Pajaro four-wheel drives out of money raised in our churches and our congregations while members of our community were protesting in front of his embassy and getting arrested over an issue of slavery. So they have done a repeat performance because of the naive uh, position that the African-American community is in. And it hurts me because if you have an agenda, then let it be your own agenda, not an agenda of someone else that uses you and even the Congressional Black Caucus. So in my conclusion and wrapping this up, we took our press, our press ran a story, and it repeated some of the lies that were in the press because it was, you know, Goebbels said that if you find a lie, that was Hitler's man, then repeat it as often as you can until it becomes believable. 50,000 people, they say, were killed. So when we got there, we say, where are the graves of 50,000 people? You can't hide 50,000 people under a tree. We asked the opposition people, they said five. We asked the leaders of some of the villages, both Arab and among the Africans, they said five, maybe 6,000 people. But what is interesting, in my conclusion, Brother Adari, that the rebel in surgery was not mentioned at all, and all that went to the black community. 
Do you think it's a coincidence, like they said with the two Russian planes that went down, that two Russian planes fall out of the sky almost at the same time? Do you think it's a coincidence that when they were drying, the ink had not dried on the peace agreement, and then a rebel faction attacked the government in Darfur, attacking uh, 80 police stations, killing over 400 soldiers, and this is the beginning of this conflict that you see. The question is asked, as the ambassador said, who is behind the rebels? Is it an American foreign policy position to keep the Sudan in chaos so they can exploit the oil that was found there, the Chevron found, capped the oil wells, now that the Chinese are bringing the oil out? Is it a design to get the gold and the uranium that they know is in the Darfur area? And is, is it a design to have a regime change for another Islamic government? You make the decision, but we will not allow the black community to be used to execute on the foreign policy of the United States government to have a regime change in the Sudan. Thank you very much. Thank you, excuse me. Thank you, Brother Akbar. And I want to just take this opportunity to bring to your attention, remind you, February 26, 2002, the Washington Post exposed that the slave redemption was a fraud. March 12th edition of the Final Call, 2002, Sudan slave redemptions exposed as frauds. It was exposed on CBS 60 Minutes. And the same people who were behind that sorry uh, propaganda campaign are the same people who are charging genocide right now. So please make that link. Our next speaker. Imam Khalid Abdul Fattah Griggs, he's the Imam of the Community Mosque of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's a journalist, a community activist, and author. And he also has recently returned from Darfur. I greet you in the Muslim greeting of peace. Assalamu alaikum. I would like to thank the Coalition to Give Peace a Chance in Sudan for putting together this event so that the citizens here in the United States may for the first time begin to get an understanding about what truly is happening in the Sudan. I'll say at the outset that I am an African-American Muslim who was born and grew up in the south southern part of the United States, in the South, in a South that had an apartheid system of racial separation during my upbringing. So when I was invited by the Islamic Society of North America to be part of a 10-person delegation to go to the Sudan, I brought with me a kind of special sensitivity to racial discrimination because of my upbringing in North Carolina. And so I have to be very clear in saying that when I got on that plane going to Khartoum, not for the first time, but going this time believing the charge of genocide, as my brother Akbar has stated by these, the image of these white Arabs who were oppressing and raping black Africans, I have to admit when I went there, I was poised and ready to attack Ambassador any member of the Sudanese government for allowing this and being a part of this form of genocide, this modern day genocide. But I also have to say from the time that we went into the airport, Khartoum International Airport, it something became very clear to me. 
And that was that by no stretch of the imagination, by no anthropological or sociological measurement, could I or anyone else in our delegation be able to make a distinction between those persons classified as Arabs and those persons classified as African. As a matter of fact, it reminded me of quite a bit of my own family, where there are members who are very dark complexion and members who are very light complexion. As a matter of fact, it gave me, because of my own background, it gave me a kind of disgust when I realized how much I had been fooled. Now, let me go on a little bit with the experience, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the Islamic Society in North America. I'm reflecting upon my personal experiences in trying to determine whether or not genocide was being committed in the country of the Sudan. We had the opportunity in the Sudan to speak with members of the government. We talked with members of those tribes, in particular the Four and the Zagawa tribes, those who were either in the camps that we went to, the two camps we went to in Darfur, we spoke with them. We spoke with so-called Arab leaders and tribal leaders, in particular Musa Hilal from the Zagawa tribe. We talked with the head of the Shura of the governing tribal council in Darfur for the Zagawa tribe, Muhammad Ahmed Sheikh. We talked with so many people on all sides of this equation, and we came to one conclusion as it related to the ethnic composition of these people, and that was that the distinction of being an Arab tribe was more of a linguistic or a definition based on language than having anything to do with ethnicity. That the so-called Arab tribes were tribes that spoke only Arabic and that the tribes who were classified as African spoke Afri an African language and Arabic. So it was very revealing to us, especially someone like myself, who was ready to jump on the members of the Sudanese, the representatives of the Sudanese government. It was very revealing to first discover this. And then, as we moved around, we were able to talk with uh, Kofi Annan's special representative, Z Jan Prock, and we, he told us very clearly that the problem in the Sudan was a very complex problem. It is a problem that has a very long history. It is a lot of things, but it is not genocide, nor is it ethnic cleansing. We talked with Gerald Gallucci, the charge of affairs in Khartoum for the United States government. He too told us that the problem is very complex that all parties who have been involved in this, what is clearly a humanitarian disaster, that all of these parties have some stain or blood on their hands, that no one is blameless. But Gallucci told our delegation as well, the United States charged the affair, told this delegation, it's horrible, it's complex, but it is not genocide, nor is it ethnic cleansing. Mohammed Ahmed Sheikh, the head, as I mentioned, of this largest tribe in Darfur, the Zagawa tribe, who was the head of the Shura, this governing tribal council, who his tribal members were a part of the rebellious faction of the rebels.
who armed themselves and attacked many of these police stations that Brother Akbar talked about and killed so many people and went to airports in Darfur and blew up planes on the runway. And subsequently, the government of Sudan, not having the military or physical capacity to stop this carnage themselves, had done what we was described to us by Muhammad Ahmed Sheikh and by Musa Halal, one of the, he was the head of a 300,000 person Arab tribe who was darker than the complexion that I have myself. But Musa Halal told our delegation that after this so-called African designated tribe attacked and started killing people that the government came in and they did ask the, some of the tribes, both Arab and African, to help us stop the carnage that is going on here in Darfur. And so I'm standing here not as someone who's trying to apologize or try to make excuses for a government that has been guilty of, of, of genocide or ethnic cleansing because, as I said at the beginning, I'm extremely sensitive to that issue because of my personal history and my family's history. And so I would never, in my right mind, be an apologist for anyone, any government, any individual who challenges and kills and murders and rapes people based on their race or ethnicity. In closing, I'd like to say that the two camps that we were privileged to go into were on the polar opposites as far as their development. We went into a camp, Zamzam, which at the time that we went in there had been established for about a month. It was a newly established camp of over 14,000 people. There were many things that came to our attention that were very uh, surprising. One was that because of the general state of poverty, the conditions that existed in Darfur, and it's not just in Darfur. Sudan, with all of its natural resources, is a very poor country. But what we discovered there in Zamzam, we found people who were living in adjacent villages to the Zamzam camp who had not been driven from their land, who had not been bombed or attacked by anybody, but who were living in the camps and found that the living and conditions in the camps were better and easier than the conditions in the villages in which they live. And so I want to end by saying, and this, we found similar situation in Abu Shuk, which is a very large camp of about 44,000 people, that the pretext by which these rebels, in particular the Justice and Equality Movement and the Sudanese Liberation Army, or Sudanese Liberation Movement, the pretext that was given for attacking and making these attacks and trying to put this kind of physical pressure on the cartoon-based government was that there is inequitable distribution of the resources by the government in Khartoum. And I stand here today to tell you with my own eyes, with my ears, with all of the senses at my disposal, I had the opportunity to look at some of this distribution of the so-called existing resources, even in the capital of the country, the Khartoum. It is a very poor country. And to use as a pretext 
that we are attacking and killing and murdering and blowing up planes. And we are coming with weapons and satellite phones and things that the Sudanese army and the government troops don't even have to use an equitable distribution of resources as a pretext for this, these horrendous acts is, a, is very disingenuous. And so those of us here living in this part of the world, I humbly submit that as we condemn because it's terrible, the humanitarian crisis. I'm not trying to understate it. It's, it's a very horrible situation. But we should try to get what the facts are. We should try to understand these facts. And we should try to bring to bear resources that are at our disposal here in the United States to help this crisis, not just on a short-term basis of trying to get bags of rice and bags of, of staple food items. That's needed as well. But we need to put money in areas of development of the infrastructure, like having uh, wells dug and things that are, have a long-term benefit that can truly benefit the people of this nation. Thank you. Thank you, Imam Khalid. And speaking of relief, I'd like to bring to your attention a flyer that is advertising an effort to collect money for the people of Darfur in these refugees camps. It's, it's reliefonline.org, reliefonline.org. And it's interesting to me that a lot of these people jumping up and down and crying genocide and protesting, why aren't they doing more to collect money to actually help these people in Darfur? And in terms of one point that was raised about the sophisticated weapons that these rebel groups have, they're based in Eritrea. And Eritrea has very close relationships with Israel. And people need to draw the, the line, make the connection between Israel, Eritrea, these rebel groups, the SBLA, and, and these neoconservative forces right here in the United States that have been working very hard to undermine the Sudanese government. I want to mention one other point. that It was our intention to have a sister up here who is also part of the delegation. We made a diligent effort to have uh, Yafet El Amin, who is a state representative in St. Louis. She wanted to be here, but she was in session. But we just wanted to share that with you. Our, our final speaker, before we do the question and answers, is last but certainly not least, Brother Mari Selikan is a very active brother here in the Washington, D.C. area. He travels throughout the country. He's been very active in the efforts to help counter this propaganda campaign being waged against Sudan, and we're very honored to have him with us this morning. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. I want to begin by thanking the Coalition to Give Peace a Chance in Sudan for holding this very important press conference and to C-SPAN for airing it. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the press, and to my uh, brothers in Islam and sisters in Islam, and to our guests, I greet you in our traditional greeting of peace. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My brief statement on the topic of discussion will be in the form of a few questions that we would like to raise as food for thought. Given the fact that civil war has raged in the country of Sudan for many years, why did America, 
along with an assortment of other interests, become concerned about the unfortunate and costly civil strife only after the present government came to power in Khartoum. Why is Sudan receiving all of this attention when there are a number of other countries on the African continent with far worse, well-documented human rights atrocities taking place? Why do critics of the Sudanese government insist upon describing the political and humanitarian crisis in Darfur in, quote, Arab versus black African terms? Why this consistent portrayal of the Janjaweed as an Arab militia when this label within Sudan is not restricted to Arab tribes? Why was the image of a Janjaweed leader that appeared on the front page of the Washington Post a few weeks ago significantly lightened to make him look more Arab as most of us would envision Arab in appearance. Why hasn't the media pointed out the fact that the more heart-rendering televised images of emaciated Darfurians come from the refugee camps in Chad? And why isn't the Chadian government being held accountable for such conditions in the court of public opinion? Why is the suggestion repeatedly being made that a systematic and widespread campaign of rape as a weapon of war is being conducted in Darfur when the findings from such respected entities as the World Health Organization suggest otherwise? Why did U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell designate the Darfur crisis genocide after emphatically stating just a few weeks earlier that what he witnessed when he visited the region did not meet the legal definition of genocide. Further, after making what appears to have been a political decision to redefine the crisis, why did he call for a, quote, full UN investigation, end quote, after branding it genocide? Shouldn't the investigation have come first? Why have some of the same individuals and groups who strongly criticize the U.S. and Britain for orchestrating a militaristic charge into Iraq under the cover of what the late British Prime Minister Winston Churchill might term, quote, a bodyguard of lies, now become advocates for a similar campaign of aggression against an African Islamic state? Why has the media, generally speaking, been complicit in allowing some of the main international actors in the so-called Sudan campaign to remain in the shadows and not be exposed for who and what they are? Why haven't the fabricators of the, quote, slavery in Sudan lie of a few years ago, some of the same actors embroiled in the current propaganda campaign, been fully exposed and held accountable for the previous campaign of false, and malicious propaganda against the government in Khartoum? Why hasn't what may arguably be considered the greatest example of state-sponsored genocide in the world today, a crisis which has now gone on for more than a half century in an occupied land historically known as Palestine, not received the same amount of concern and scrutiny by the U.S. government, the U.N. Security Council, evangelical Christian organizations, 
and Jewish organizations ostensibly dedicated to civil and human rights, as has the crisis in Darfur. Why is the media once again failing in its responsibility to raise the tough questions? And finally, what would be the human and material cost of needless military intervention in Sudan? These are just a few salient questions that we raise concerning the crisis in Darfur, questions which underscore the reason why there is growing concern and activism around this issue within the Muslim American community, and particularly among Muslims of Afro-American descent. I thank you for your time and attention. Thank you, Brother Salakan. I want to uh, now give an opportunity for you to ask questions. I'd like you to please identify yourself, your affiliation. I want to also take this opportunity to bring to your attention a website, darfurinformation.com, which is a very good, excellent source of information about Darfur. So if you have a question, you can stand now, identify yourself, and direct your question. I want to also bring to your attention that Jesse Jackson uh, was invited to the press conference. He also recently returned from Jafur and Darfur, and he also has not been using the word genocide to characterize the uh, unfortunate situation taking place in, in Sudan. Yes, sir. My name is Askiya Mohammed. I'm with the Final Call newspaper. Yesterday on Capitol Hill, Senator Brownback, Congress members Tancredo, Payne, and Wolf proposed a 30,000-member peacekeeping force composed of 10,000 Sudanese, Sudanese troops, to at least 10,000 from the African Union, to uh, go into the region and to establish relief. Uh, I'd like to ask the ambassador, would your country send as many as 10,000 troops to the Darfur region, and would you welcome at least 10,000 from the African Union? And if I may, uh, in, uh, uh, Mr. Salakan raised the question, who would pay for such a the challenge was issued by Congressman Payne, put the troops, put the boots on the ground, and then challenged the West to pay for the relief effort. Would the government of Sudan uh, welcome, send 10,000 of its own troops and welcome 10,000 at least from the African Union to help in relief efforts in that region? Thank you very much for the question. Uh, my reaction to this uh, uh, suggestion of sending uh, 30,000 troops to the country, would, I would say that such kind of intervention from the U.S. Congress or from uh, any other body other than the African Union at this time would be counterproductive. I think since the whole issue is handled currently by the African Union, we should give the, an African, the African Union a chance to fix the situation there and therefore rather than uh, to intervene again. I mean, one of the problems which we have currently, you remember on July the 3rd that uh, Secretary General Kofi Annan agreed with the Sudanese government uh, to fix the situation within 90 days, within three months. And uh, while he was still in the region there, the United States uh, pushed for a resolution uh, which came to be 1556, uh, which cut off that th three months to only 30 days. Uh, and, and now we end up 
again with the United States is trying to pressure the international community to, to pass a new uh, resolution uh, to punish the government. So uh, I frankly, I, I doubt the, the sincerity of the people who would jump every time in order to sabotage uh, the, the, the good efforts of the African Union. Uh, the African Union is, 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 a, is a credible uh, body trusted by the government as well as by the rebels there. Uh, so I think, and it is also uh, in contrast to the uh, Chapter 8 of the United Nations Charter, which uh, say that if there is any regional conflict handled by a regional uh, organization, it should be left there. Uh, till they, they have themselves give up. Maybe the African Union at a certain point would come and say, we couldn't handle this. It's up to the United uh, Nations uh, you know, to, to handle it. But since that this is not the situation right now, uh, I think the whole issue should be left totally to the African Union to handle. The government in Khartoum would be open-minded uh, if we feel that we could not fix uh, this uh, uh, situation ourselves, uh, we would ask our brother and sister in the African Union uh, to do the job for, for us. Thank you. Uh, yes, sir. I'm Al Milliken, affiliated with Washington Independent Writers. Um, as American and Sudanese Muslims, um, how do you see Muslims in other parts of the world responding to the way Jews and Christians, uh, blacks and whites, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats in the United States have united on the Sudan in a way they have in few, if any, other areas. Uh, and do you have concerns uh, that this may be affecting Muslims around the world in the way they are responding to the war on terror? I can sit here. You can hear me, right? Um, first of all, I don't know what the Washington's Writers Guild is, but the, by the nature of your question, um, there are Muslims and Christians in the Sudan. They have committees set up so that they can have a working relationship. This issue that has come up with the Sudan is to divide the Muslim world. Uh, Lugard, one of the uh, British people who wanted to get into Africa, said the, the policy of divide and rule. So they want to divide, especially the continent of Africa, that's pushing towards an African Union, an AU, and want one currency, one parliament, one national army. The best way to stop that effort, and so that the Western world can continue to exploit Africa, is divide the Afri Africa between Arabs and blacks, and create the kind of circumstances that is a created circumstances in the Sudan uh, with the rebels. The first question should have been asked, how did this start? There's a rebel group. Sudan just came out of a long war since 1983, spending $2 million a day in a war that they could barely afford. And no longer than the ink is dried on the paper, uh, the Western world, Eritrea, that Madeleine Albright armed to the T with Ethiopia, and they began to fight each other against the Sudan. 
Now those same weapons are finding their way into the Darfur area, and it's obvious that the Western world is trying to divide Arabs from black Africa, and so they can slice uh, Africa up in countries in Africa as they sliced up former Yugoslavia. Let me add to that, too. As an African-American and as a Muslim, we see the attacks on Sudan as part of the attack on Islam worldwide, as part of the smear campaign. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the United States. And in, within the United States, within the African-American community, it is growing by leaps and bounds, even since 911. And so if there can be this terrible portrait painted of Sudan, this is a deliberate effort, we feel, to try to distance African-Americans from Islam and from their Muslim brothers in Sudan who love African-Americans and who look just like us and who love us. And I want to take this opportunity to point out that on Friday, in front of the Sudanese embassy at 1.30, there's going to be a Juma prayer service of Muslims from throughout the area to pray for peace in Sudan and to show our solidarity with our Muslim brothers and sisters. Please, go ahead. I'd just like to add a very quick comment, um, and that is that as an African-American Muslim, I think all of us, African-American Muslims, we're all concerned about the impact or the effect that this charge of genocide labeled against the Sudanese government will have on the spread of Islam in this country, as Brother Hadari said. But also, Sudan as a country is very strategic to not only Muslim Africa, but the African continent as well. We had the opportunity while we were in Sudan to meet with and spend a lot of time with the one of the leaders of the Muslim community in Rwanda, Sheikh Saleh uh, Habimana. And Sheikh Saleh, who lived through one of the worst genocides, uh, definitely of this century, in, uh, of last century, in 1994, where one million people were killed in, in 100 days, was very clear in saying that the Sudan was critical to the continent. It helps feed the rest of the nations. That pharmaceutical plant that was destroyed by, uh, under the orders of Clinton was producing pharmaceuticals for malaria, and it's a ripple effect that was the, these drugs were passed all over the continent. So it's a ripple effect of what happens in Sudan on the, the impact that it has on the rest of the continent. So uh, Sudan is strategic to not only the African continent, but it's also strategic to the spread of Islam or the obstacles presented to the spread of Islam in this country. We've been joined by Imam Johari Abdul Malik, who is the uh, Muslim chaplain at Howard University. He's the director of outreach at Dar al-Hijra Masjid, one of the largest masjids in the area in Virginia. He's also the president of the Community Coalition of Muslim Organizations here in the Washington, D.C. area. Our time is just about up, but I didn't want our session to end without giving Brother Jahari an opportunity to share a few comments with you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Praising the Almighty and giving thanks for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I don't want to uh, repeat much of what uh, the others have said, except to say as a person who just returned from the region uh, maybe a month ago, uh, it seems strange to us that people would have been there, and while they're on the ground, we met with uh, representatives of the United Nations, representatives from the United States, uh, uh, embassies, representatives. And at that time, 
uh, Colin Powell was saying that there's no genocide. And then when he gets back to the house, uh, then uh, he flip-flops. Oh, sorry, that's what the, Demo the Democrat, I, 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 whatever, you know what I'm saying. That, that the reality is, and I don't want us to get caught in between, that currently there is a humanitarian crisis in Sudan precipitated by a civil war. And while the United States government, the enemies of Sudan who are part of an anti-Sudan campaign, are arguing about whether it's genocide or not, it's holding up people of goodwill from delivering the humanitarian relief that needs to come to help foment the, the peace in Sudan. And so for me and you, I'm going to suggest to you, let's get, let's, these people who are, who are fixated on the genocide question, tell them if they're so concerned about the people of Sudan, then let them come forward in their churches, in their synagogues, in their mosques, and provide the humanitarian relief that is needed in Sudan. We visited camps where they need tons of food on a regular basis because of the effects of sanctions, because of the effect of desertification, and because of the effect of the current civil war. So that's my comment to you today. We need to be about the business of providing the kind of relief that we say as a civilized nation that we should be providing, and we ought to focus our efforts there on cooperating with people on the ground to take care of those brothers and sisters in Africa who we say we, we, we are so concerned about them that we ought to follow it with some actions, not with fomenting violence, not by ostracizing friends, but by, alhamdulillah, providing the kind of humanitarian relief that is needed in the Sudanese conflict. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you, Brother Johari. Our time is up, but I want to again um, invite you listening to go online, reliefonline.org. This is your opportunity to show your concrete concern for the people of Sudan. And the bottom line for us at the coalition is this. We were lied to about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and the same people are lying to us about genocide in Darfur for the same reasons, to install a puppet government to steal oil. And we feel that the exact motivation is at play with Sudan. Demonize the government, try to have regime change, put in a puppet government, go in there and steal the oil. So we thank you for very much for coming out. Uh, as again, our time is up, but we want to encourage you to um, perhaps do interviews with all of the participants. This is a topic that deserves more attention. And give it the fair attention. Realize that there's two sides to this story. So we thank you on behalf of the Coalition to Give Peace in, a Chance in Sudan. We thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, before um, you pack up and go, I should note that on September the 29th, oh, right, right. Uh, I believe that's a Wednesday, September 29th, there's going to be a live broadcast of this issue with both sides on the, of the issue represented at the table. Uh, a live forum broadcast over Pacifica Radio on the morning of uh, September 29th from, I think, 11 to 1 in the afternoon. 
Thank you. Is there a phone number if they want to? Uh, um, on the outside, there are copies of my statement. There's a there's a telephone number and an email address. I can get you more additional information if if you like. If you just contact me there. You want it?